My name is Bella. I am a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I am joined by Danelle Perdia Peralta, Associate Professor of Classical Studies at Princeton University. He is the author of Undocumented, A Dominican Boy's Odyssey from a Homeless Shelter to the Ivy League. Last night, Professor Padilla Peralta gave a wonderful lecture at Dickinson College titled Bodega Poetics, Classics in Caribbean Diaspora. Thank you for joining me this morning to continue the conversation. It's a real pleasure to be here, Bella. Thank you so much for your hospitality. Of course. I have some questions prepared. The first one I had, um, what is the biggest misconception you notice that students have about classical studies, like coming into college or high school or wherever they're learning about it first? There are two big misconceptions. I mean, they, they weld into one. Um, the first is that classical studies has to be about ancient Greece and Rome, understood in isolation from other cultures. The second misconception is that classics somehow exists in a distant past mm -hmm. with little to no continuous interaction uh, with the many communities that have come since that past and that have engaged with that past in a varied and dynamic way. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I guess this might be answered by the book you cited in your presentation last night, but why did you want to learn Latin? I wanted to learn Latin for a few reasons. The f one was that my parents were in the habit of making these jokes about uh, figures uh, from antiquity. Um, and one of these jokes features in the 2015 memoir. Uh, it was a joke that relies on a pun in Spanish. Uh, Ever since Brutus killed Caesar, brutes have lived without ceasing. So it gives like a very imperfect rendering yeah. of this pun. Um, so I was fortunate to have parents who uh, were attuned in in a variety of ways to historical study. Um, and I was also the product uh, of a Dominican culture where references to ancient Greece and Rome are not at all difficult to pick up once you begin looking. Um, but honestly, the real reason I became interested uh, in Latin was because there was this incredible teacher uh, at uh, my middle and high school. And I had signed up for Latin thinking, this will certainly be fun. It's quite similar to Spanish. I know Spanish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it, it might not be that heavy a lift. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in church as a preteen and teenager uh, in a very Catholic environment uh, where the traces of Latinity, even after uh, the Second Vatican Council, were everywhere. And yet it was in the classroom of this teacher that I developed a real enthusiasm for the language and for the literatures that grew out of that language. And that sustained me for as long as uh, I can recall. Latin kind of ripped you in. <laughs> it did, yeah. um, but it also opened the door to a vision of the ancient world 
that could extend well beyond language. Um, I think I would have I, I would have probably ended up studying something pre-modern and something ancient, even if I had not had access to Latin. Um, and it's quite likely that I would have probably pursued another ancient language or two, even if Latin and ancient Greek had not been on the radar. Uh, but having the opportunity to work with this incredibly gifted uh, teacher uh, proved to be decisive. That's an amazing answer. Thank you. <laughs> and this is kind of out of personal curiosity. What was it like for your life story to be featured in so many big papers like New York Times and Wall Street Journal after you graduated college? So it, it, it did provoke contradictory feelings. On the one hand, it was certainly exciting that the life of an undocumented immigrant was receiving news coverage. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, as I saw it, a sign of a potentially new way of centering the perspectives and experiences of the undocumented. But I was also taken aback and at times rather frustrated by what I saw as, as tendencies in this news coverage that seemed to me inimical to the longer-term aims of building up and affirming the contributions of all undocumented immigrants. Um, so an insistent refrain in this coverage was on what was taken to be my exceptionalism. And, and this was in due time given expression even in the subtitle of uh, my memoir, over which there was some disagreement uh, with uh, uh, my publisher. And yet what I had wanted to stress by coming forward and sharing my story was first that there were many, many like us. Um, and second, that what could be and should be the most ethically rigorous way uh, of addressing the predicament of undocumented immigrants in the United States was to proceed from the assumption that every single person deserved humane treatment and an opportunity to participate in American life. And that one did not have to be credentialed in the ways in which I was credentialed in order to deserve such treatment. That makes total sense, yeah. The Wall Street Journal called you one of the best classicists to emerge in your generation. Would you call yourself a classicist? Uh, at this point, probably not. Um, <laughs> I would, I, I, I'd certainly call myself a, a student of the ancient Mediterranean world. Um, but as my talk last night was made clear, uh, I have a rather antagonistic relationship to classics as a as a as a as a term and as a incubator of values. Mm -hmm. um, and this is not to say, you know, to be perfectly clear, that I disavow the study of the ancient Greek and Roman world. I mean, I spend every day <laughs> studying <laughs> the ancient Greek and Roman world, so I, I, I can't be disavowed of that. I mean that the the terms classics and classicists are not resonant with what I see as priorities in 
a diligent and exacting recovery of the communities and perspectives of different antiquities, antiquities in the plural. Um, antiquity itself is, is uh, it's, uh, introduces its own complexity uh, as a term. Um, but as I mentioned in the lecture last night and during the Q&A, I'm much more invested in the project um, of what Madhura Umachandran and Marcello Ward um, have in community with a collective of scholars designated critical ancient world studies. That seems to me responsive to what I see as the signature priorities of a truly rigorous approach um, to not just the ancient world understood them to exist in some kind of isolation uh, from our world, but the many ways in which the study of the ancient world collapses into um, the study uh, of the subjectivities of those of us uh, implicated uh, in research and teaching. Thank you. That was a perfect answer. I was curious because I wrote in the introduction for last week's event um, out of a, a quote from a poet I like called, uh, that says, it matters what you call the thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that for classic, that really rings true, especially with all the misconceptions people have. I think that a lot of them root from just calling certain things classic. What does that mean? Yeah. yeah. Super interesting. Oh, and how did you come up with the title of yesterday's lecture, Bodega Poetics? Ah. <laughs> I love bodegas, and I've been thinking a great deal about poetry that engages with bodegas. Mm -hmm. I've also been busy in connection with this book project that I, I briefly sketched in, at the beginning of last night's talk uh, with itemizing some of the poetic strategies that emerge in Dominican and Caribbean context more generally for facing up to the ancient world, engaging the ancient world, engaging some of the tensions that arise from the repeated negotiation with ancient Greece and Rome. And so it seemed to me important to bring the universe of the bodega and the universe of poetically mediated encounters with the ancient Greco-Roman world together in the same space. I was also very taken, uh, as the final movement in, of the talk last night, underlined with the writings of Rina Estayat um, and with the varied and supple ways in which she turns to poetry as a resource for constructing uh, a, a long dray perspective on the diaspora. Um, and since I see the Caribbean diasporas of my childhood and adulthood and present day as continuing to orbit, the note of the bodega, I thought, bodega poetics, yeah. it could work. One of the most interesting parts I thought that you noted in your presentation was um, using the word epistemicide to, like, in relation to classics. So how would you define epistemicide in general? So epistemicide is a concept that um, has multiple origins. It's, it's most often credited, and in fact in my 2020 article I, I did in the, in the first instance credit it to uh, post-colonial theorist Juaventura de Sousa Santos. Um, in recent years there have been numerous allegations um, of Sousa Santos's 
um, own predatory behaviors, and so I'm loath to give them citational space now. And as multiple scholars have pointed out um, on social media, there is actually a pedigree for this idea that actually extends well past Sousa Santos. There, there are actually plenty of other um, folks who over the past several decades have tried to give an account of what exactly epistemicide is. Um, so on the simplest definition, epistemicide is the destruction of knowledges in concert with imperialism. Um, it is the whole-scale leveling uh, of forms of knowledge tied, in many cases, to native and indigenous communities um, and to their negotiations um, of the nature-culture interface. Um, so what I have liked about working with epistemicide as a concept is that it does not rely solely or even primarily um, on the destruction of textualized knowledges. So there, there has been some work done in ancient studies, but not only in ancient studies, that, that fastens on to, say, the destruction of the Library of Alexandria as uh, this iconic moment and the loss of knowledge. Um, but in my opinion, to dwell over much on these episodes um, is to lose sight of the fact that imperial systems um, in ancient Mediterranean antiquity and in other settings as well uh, attack forms of knowledge that are not textualized or make selections from um, non-textualized knowledges that are then in various ways repurposed to suit the ends of empire um, and so on. Epistemicide became especially resonant for me because I saw it as a process that bridged the Mediterranean world at the center of one aspect of my training and the Caribbean world at the center of another um, uh, site of my training. Um, and it had, I think, the benefit, too, of um, encompassing distinct types um, of uh, knowledge destruction under one heading. So... Um, uh, post-colonial theorists, uh, especially working in uh, uh, African contexts, had, had given a great deal of thought to linguicide, um, and this too has been taken up now um, in recent years by uh, scholars studying uh, the loss of native or indigenous languages. Um, and linguicide is a very important feature of epistemicide. Um, but I wanted to use a concept that uh, did not confine itself solely to languages, um, even though languages um, can, as indigenous scholars have made a point of emphasizing, uh, be uh, incredibly important uh, to the sustenance of worldviews. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. I know it's kind of an abstract, kind of hard to define as one person, but it was, that was a great definition. Thank you. And jumping to something a little more, I guess, easy to answer. <laughs> what type of work um, did you do for the Justice and Education Initiative? Because I noticed that in your bio, and I think that project's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So for the Justice and Education Initiative at Columbia University, uh, which was funded um, by uh, a grant from the Mellon Foundation, um, I uh, helped design courses for... Uh, formerly incarcerated um, individuals um, who were, in many cases, uh, recently re-entered citizens uh, um, and who, uh, as part um, of 
their return home uh, were seeking opportunities um, for um, college education. Um, uh, and uh, to that end, I uh, participated uh, with several other teachers in uh, the design of a curriculum that sampled uh, from Columbia's core curriculum, um, but that also introduced different components that were intended to um, make it possible uh, for um, formerly incarcerated individuals to uh, develop uh, a critique of the systems that um, had been responsible um, and, and implicated in um, the forms of structural violence that they had experienced. Um, so that was the work I did for Justice in Education. Um, I, I will say that the work did significantly alter my perspective uh, on ancient texts in particular. Um, so one of the most extraordinary but also honestly quite harrowing experiences came when during the very first of the classes offered um, to the first cohort of Justice and Education uh, Fellows, we had uh, a, a spirited discussion about uh, this passage in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. I had assigned a selection from the Nicomachean Ethics on friendship, and one of the cornerstone arguments that Aristotle makes in the section of the Nicomachean Ethics is that friendship is centered on reciprocity. If you can't reciprocate, for someone, to someone, and how can you be their friend? And one of the people in the class said that it was that passage that had opened up to him why everyone in his life fell away after he was incarcerated, because he could not be there for people. And it was that recognition of the profoundly estranging effect um, of incarceration in the context of that encounter with the Nicomachean ethics that made it possible for me to see that there is, there is something of value to this work that extends beyond, you know, say, you know, the glorification of ancient texts as having some timeless, universalizable uh, function, um, but that rather sees these texts as opportunities for uh, a, an intimate and very personal renegotiation of uh, the stakes of this kind of structural violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I did for Justice in Education. And with your teachings now, teaching the future of classics and your students, are you hopeful for the future of classics? Uh, I'm hopeful for uh, critical ancient world studies. How? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I... On the one hand, I am inclined to optimism when I see just how alive uh, the, the study of pre-modern cultures is in undergraduate settings and beyond the academy. Um, and it is alive despite the multiple um, uh, and uh, in, in some cases seemingly intractable uh, assaults uh, on uh, the funding structures for the humanities, uh, the teaching uh, of pre-modern cultures um, at K through 12 and at the undergraduate level, um, the continuing uh, and coordinated um, effort um, to 
sideline the teaching of things like slavery and race, um, which, as I've discussed with students time and again, uh, are inseparable from any discussion um, of antiquity and its legacies. Um, despite all of this, there is still robust interest. Um, at the same time, though, I can't help but be a bit concerned uh, that the the colleagues with whom I work, and in fact the institutional apparatus to which I report as an employed faculty member, has somehow lost sight of the bigger picture. Um, as I was saying at the talk last night, the, the contest for the future of critical ancient world studies cannot but be political. Um, the choices that we make about what to study or not are at their core, as already Aristotle and the politics had noticed a long, long time ago, mm -hmm. political choices. Um, they bear directly on the kinds of um, things we most value in the training of future generations. And so, so long as people, you know, working from within critical ancient world studies are intent on uh, grappling uh, with a politics equal to the task uh, of uh, promoting the study of ancient communities, there will be a future. Mm -hmm. If, for various reasons, um, those folks who have the most riding on uh, the continuing institutionalization of ancient world studies um, fail to uh, coordinate uh, uh, an effective political um, uh, program for sustaining their study, then classics, as we know it, will disappear. Mm -hmm. And it is quite possible that classics will disappear regardless. Um, but the hope that I had outlined last night is that it might be replaced by something else, which would be desirable, mm -hmm. depending on what that something else is. Um, so, mix, a mix of uh, optimism and pessimism. I have one more question, and it's a bit silly. <laughs> Please, I like silly questions. So one of my favorite moments from your book talked about your childhood love for ketchup mm -hmm. and the ketchup story, the resulting incident. Do you still have a ketchup aversion? Well, I still do like it, but I, I, don't, I, 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 I don't saturate my food with it. I learned my lesson as a, uh, as a kid. Um, my kids like ketchup now. Uh, and uh, they also like mustard. My daughter really likes mustard. Um, and she did yell at us frequently for not dousing her hot dog in mustard. Uh, I was like, well, it's not going to taste good, you know. Um, but no, I'm still in love with ketchup. <laughs> so this concludes our interview. And on behalf of the Clark Forum, uh, thank you so much again for sitting down and having this conversation with me. Thank you so much, Bill.